0: John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This ends the reading of God's Word. Open to the book of Revelation.
1: Ryan read the first chapter this morning. I'm going to simply read the first three verses, and I'm going to provide this week and next an introduction to the book. that will hopefully enable you to understand how to interpret the book. This, like every other portion of Scripture, is the word of God. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place In it for the time is near. Holy Father, we gather in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, because of the work of your Son on our behalf. What a joy it is, mighty Lord, to be so privileged. To shepherd your flock. What a joy it is to be part of your flock. What a privilege it is to be called the redeemed. Lord, I pray that as we enter into the study of this beautiful, glorious, victorious book of your Bible, that you will grant us grace. I pray that you would work within the hearts of all of your people that will attend here a spirit of humility, teachability, and ability on my part and the power of the Spirit to minister to your people and that we would come to a greater understanding of Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. The book of Revelation depicts a continuing conflict between the lamb and the dragon, the church and the world, the holy city of God and the great city Babylon, the bride and the harlot, Those marked on their forehead with the name of Christ and those marked on their forehead with the name of the beast. But even so, the book of Revelation depicts much more than a conflict, but rather a great, great conquest. It's a declaration, beloved, that Christ has conquered and he intends for his people to share in his victory. At the beginning of the 20th century, theologian Henry Sweet wrote The whole book of Revelation is sursum corda, Latin for lift up your heart a summons to John's readers to lift up their hearts in order to see their tribulations in relation to the victorious reigning and returning Christ. Unfortunately, many of us come to this book with misconstrued presuppositions that have been formed by the popular teachings of the past few decades, causing confusion and people that I've spoken to over the years, much anxiety. How unfortunate is that? And we hope to extinguish that as we study the book of Revelation. You know, living in America, it's easy to to fall prey to frenzy, to panic and conspiracy theories. In everything that we see, in everything that we read, this is an addicted society. I was in a restaurant with my son having lunch just a week ago, and behind my son on the wall there were a a number of TV screens, much like these hanging on the wall. Um, On one you had ESPN, and another you had a news um, network, and the sound was muted, and what I saw were images, and I could tell that it was an introductory advertisement for an upcoming documentary news program. And on the screen I saw flashing images, bottles of prescription drugs, Xanax, Adderall, Ritalin, and a number of other amphetamine and sedative uh, pill forms that Americans are prescribed in mass today. Flashing images of bar scenes, parties, bottles of alcohol, Two men smoking a joint, another guy uh, drawing up lines of cocaine, massive groups of people pressing in towards one another as they move into arenas, fields, and halls of entertainment, panning the scene then to a group of people in a mall in a food court, stuffing their mouths with Big Macs and burritos, followed by the caption, America, the addict. And it caused me to think of the predisposed uh, mindset of most Americans who are so easily influenced when it comes to what we must have to survive that are kind of band-aids for the psyche. Along with our ever-growing impulse for hysteria. Sadly, such influences have... Captured the minds of, I would say, in my own opinion, most evangelicals. Preaching has degenerated from biblical exposition to moral pep talks. Quite frankly, to sit in a church like this on any given Sunday where the word, word is exposited for one hour plus would, frank, quite frankly, bore most professing Christians to death. How sad. An appetite for the meaning of God's word has been replaced by a pursuit of satisfying one's felt needs. And as a result, the few who stand and resist and are persistent in remaining faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ are accused of being too extreme, too authoritative. (laughs) and quite frankly overly dogmatic and unfortunately most of those accusations come from professing christians it's a sad day but those who teach the bible and refuse to line up with pop theology are ironically referred to as being out of step or off base and many times something altogether different See in approaching the book of Revelation most evangelicals today substitute the substance of this book for a misreading of the drama within the book. And they fail to see its intent and therefore they miss the whole point of the glorious book of Revelation. Those who teach and reject the hysteria are the ones accused of being unbiblical. This, beloved, is the book known as the revelation of Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. (laughs) By the way, it's the revelation of, not the revelations of, So we say we're in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't say we're in the revelations. It's the book of Revelation. Amen? It's the book of Revelation. Now, he's the one that's revealing this revelation. And even though he's the one revealing it, he's also the one being revealed. Now, some of you may be shocked to discover as we study this book that Revelation is not about missiles. It's not about attack helicopters. Nor is it about hydrogen bombs or crashing to earth. Therefore, to study this book and, and to overlook Jesus Christ even unintentionally is to be completely off base with everything that this book claims about itself. It's Christ, the victor, the conquering hero. Also. The book of Revelation in no way communicates the idea that being a Christian means guaranteed deliverance from the experience of trouble and tribulation. We don't escape from suffering, but rather we overcome through it in the presence of the Lamb, in the presence of the great lion, the great king, Jesus Christ, who, as I said, is the conquering hero of this book. This book is written to help you finish the course, beloved. If you're a Christian, this book is written to exhort you, to encourage you to be able to finish the race. And overcomers of the gospel will be granted the ability to eat from the tree of life on a resurrected earth, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the fact that the book of Revelation has been the cause of so much confusion... And anxiety is quite ironic due to the fact that its title is the Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation is the English translation of the Greek word apokalypsis, the apocalypse. Now, there's no need whatsoever when you hear the word apocalypse to think, oh, oh, end of the world. 2012, oh no, planes falling out of the air, cars crashing, people disappearing, along with other sci fi type interpretations that have been written about. Apocalypse, revelation simply means the unveiling. The unveiling. It's to expose what lies behind the veil, it's something uncovered, it's something revealed. It's the uncovering and the revealing of Jesus Christ, victor. Jesus used this word in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, uh, 26 rather. He said, therefore, do not fear them, those that oppose you and oppose the gospel because of Christ. For there's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Now, the imagery there is that of a statue or a monument that's covered up by a tarp. That's the imagery in mind. Hidden from the multitude, and and yet there comes a day when the tarp is pulled back. That's the first word used in the book of Revelation. It's a revealing. This is not an apocryphon. This is not something hidden. This, my friends, is not a mystical code to be cracked. Unfortunately, most Christians read the book of Revelation like a comic book, like a horror film. They use it as a kind of crystal ball to piece together and puzzle together uh, world events as they read New York Times or they watch CNN at night. And they're trying to place into you fear. I know people who work in the news industry who are anchors, main anchors, because these are fear tactics, man. The fact that Hal Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series have sold in the millions has only fed into the obsession of the modern church today. Which is nothing, nothing less than a last day's kind of hysteria. Gary DeMar wrote a book entitled Last Day's Madness. <laughs> and in it, he writes under the heading Prophetic Deja Vu the following. Listen to this. From the second century on, there has been the idea that the events recorded in Revelation were to be fulfilled in their lifetime. Montanus, a self-declared prophet, proclaimed the eminent appearance of the new Jerusalem. In the third century, Novation, another self-proclaimed prophet, gathered a group of people to await the second coming and destruction of the world. Donatus, from the 4th century, commanded attention when he stressed that only 144,000 would be chosen by God, and he found this magic figure in Revelation 14.1. As the last day of 999 approached, the old basilica of St. Peter's at Rome was thronged with a mass of weeping and trembling worshipers awaiting the end of the world, believing that they were on the eve of the millennium. Land, homes, and household goods were given to the poor as a final act of contrition to absolve the hopeless from sins of a lifetime. Some Europeans sold their goods before traveling to Palestine to await the second coming. This mistake, this mistaken application of biblical prophecy happened again in 1100, 1200, 1245, And the 100-year war from the mid-14th century to the mid-15th century was thought to be the great Armageddon of revelation. From the French Revolution to the American Civil War, World War I, World War II, all were considered to be the apocalyptic event of the revelation. And then in 1971, Hal Lindsey said, our own generation would see that the headlines from each morning's newspaper would set forth to fulfill the prophecy of the revelation. Predictions of a secret rapture. 88 reasons the rapture would occur in 1988 was the title of one very popular book. Computers in Belgium were known to be labeled as the beast. And what do all these predictions share in common, beloved? Every single one of them was wrong every single time. In our day, it's reported that the Left Behind series is the best-selling Christian or non-fiction book series of all time. Over 50 million copies of the Left Behind series have been sold. Ten million of the Left Behind series for kids have been sold. No wonder they have nightmares. <laughs> Fear. Those series of books were referred to by 60 Minutes in a piece that they did in 2004 as the greatest story ever sold. Sold. As people read these popular end-time books, it's understanding, it's understandable why the modern church is obsessed with prophecy and why these books are so popular. They read like a novel. They're incredibly entertaining. They're very fascinating, but beloved, they are not biblical. I've never read one, but they look fun. I heard a radio preacher just last week describing the mark of the beast. He described the mark of the beast as a kind of microchip that people will be forced to take in order to buy food and goods in the marketplace. He spoke about fathers who will want to feed their children and they will be forced to make a decision, either starve and or be beheaded or have this microchip planted within them and become sealed for eternal hell. Back in 1998, I was invited to go listen to a very popular prophecy quote-unquote expert who also teaches Bible cosmic codes. He spoke on the Y2K dilemma. He made a statement. That said, computers and computer chips that control the world would cease to function on January 1st, in the year 2000. The market will crash. All will be lost in one hour. Life as you know it will end. Go buy yourselves a generator, store up food and water, get a gun, and run for the hills. The Antichrist will soon be revealed. He used the following verse in a standing room only auditorium to support. His view. Revelation 18, verse 17. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance, cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city They threw dust on their heads. They cried out, weeping, wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. I'll tell you what. I saw his teaching provoke anxiety in the ignorant. They bought his book. He made a fortune. His friends who wrote similar books made a fortune. Many of those Christians went out and stored up goods, purchased generators. I had friends of mine who said, why aren't you storing up food? I said, this is ridiculous. They did it for me. I'm not kidding you. We're going to do it for you. My friend who worked in retail at the time told me that stores had a no return policy on generators. Because they knew, the world knew that this wasn't gonna happen. And again, the church was the laughing stock. What that night revealed to me was this that people will fill an auditorium more eagerly to hear about Antichrist than they will Jesus Christ. That is not the emphasis of the book of Revelation. There is sadly a preoccupation in the confessing church today with Antichrist more so than there is a fascination with Jesus, the Lamb. This book is not intended to scare you. This book is not intended to intimidate you. It's not to confuse you. It's not to hide anything from you. It is to expose something to you. So today and next week, we're going to look at some key principles. Again, key principles that must be understood and adhered to to be able to take a biblical approach of understanding the book of Revelation. Next week, we'll look at the broad theme of the Revelation and we'll look at the structure of the book along with some uh, the date and and time of authorship. We're going to look at two different perspectives with external evidence and internal evidence. Okay? Hint the revelation of Jesus Christ is not meant to be read in chronological order. Hint, the book of Revelation is not meant to be read in chronological order. This week, this morning, we want to look at three keys of literary style that make up the book of Revelation. Three keys of literary style that make up the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is not an easy book to interpret. I think we all understand that. So it's vital that we use proper biblical techniques of interpretation as we examine its structure. Now, most end-time books today ignore proper sound biblical principles of interpretation, which leads to subjective speculation. Well, this is what I think it means. I think the mark of the beast refers to a barcode. That'll make for a good movie. But it's not biblical. There's three principles, beloved, that we must adhere to in order to rightly interpret the revelation. Okay, they're outlined for you in your bulletin. Three principles that we must adhere to are characterized by three literary styles. Number one, revelation, beloved. Revelation is an epistle. It is a letter. A literal letter written to a particular audience to address their real life situation and imminent circumstances confronting those people. Okay? Number one, it is a letter. Principle number two, Revelation is a prophecy. Both foretelling of the future and forthtelling, meaning declaring. The word of God. And thirdly, revelation is apocalyptic. Meaning this is a genre of literature. This is a style, a particular style of writing that seeks to communicate to the reader symbolically. Okay, did you get that? To communicate to the reader symbolically. Via imagery. First, let's look at the fact that it is a letter. Notice there's an author, it's John. There's an audience, there's recipients, seven churches, seven historic churches in Asia Minor. There's a prologue explaining its basic purpose. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, I just read that this morning. There's a greeting, chapter 4, chapter 1 rather, verse 4 through 5a. There's a farewell, chapter 22, verse 21. And then you have the body of the letter, chapter 1, verse 5b to 22, verse 20. This is the same formal arrangement that we see in Paul's letters Church of Colossae, Church of Philippi, Church of Corinth, Church at Rome. So this letter, right here, the book of Revelation, was written to address an historical situation real people facing real problems. We must not forget that. It was written for a church under attack, under heavy attack, beloved. And it was written to comfort those to whom it was addressed. Now, as we study the Bible, it's imperative that we rightly understand what each passage meant in its original context. You understand that as a student of the word of God, amen? We have to understand what it meant to those original recipients. Okay, the book of Revelation is no different. It is no different. We must adhere to this principle. It was not written to those who live right before the very end. Now, having said that, Okay, beloved, having said that, we can be sure that all the Bi- although the Bible was not written to us, it was written for us. as God's redeemed people throughout time. It's for us and it's to be understood as it was to those who originally received it first. So, if this letter, and it is a letter, was geared towards those who are living at the very end, it would make it irrelevant to those for whom it was originally addressed. It's logical, amen? So this was a letter originally addressed to these seven churches, which, by the way, are indeed a type, no doubt, of all churches. Therefore, it's written for us to be understood as it was addressed to them. For instance, Paul's letters were written to a specific Christian group, specific given time, who lived throughout the Roman Empire. And as the word of God, they are at the same time for all Christians everywhere. When we study the book of Romans, which we'll get to sometime We're going to lay down the context. Who wrote it? Why he was writing it? What was going on? The church of Philippi. I mean, the church of Corinth. We have to know what was going on in Corinth to make a proper application to us today. So once we understand the original context to the original recipients, then we can know how to make a safe application in our day and in our present context. So case in point, beloved, is this, scripture cannot mean for us what it never meant for the original readers. One theologian has said it like this, quote, any interpretation of this book, Revelation, that necessitates a 21st century perspective is almost certainly wrong. And such is the case with every book of the Bible. It's written for us, but it was not addressed specifically to us. That's principle number one. The book of Revelation is a letter, a real letter, an epistle. Principle number two, or key number two, Revelation is a prophecy. Revelation is a prophecy for telling about the future, no doubt, and also foretelling forth telling or declaring the word of the Lord. Both elements occur in the Old Testament. Both elements occur here in the book of Revelation. So the biblical approach to interpreting Revelation is simply, beloved, to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, let's, let's say that together. Let's let Scripture interpret Scripture. <laughs> that was good. So in order to understand Revelation, we're going to have to go back to its Old Testament counterparts on numerous occasions. Now, our interpretation of this book must be strictly controlled by the Old Testament, not CNN. Not the New York Times, but the Old Testament. So, the Revelation is the New Testament counterpart of Old Testament prophecy, but specifically or particularly the Old Testament book of Daniel. Now, in Daniel 8.26, listen to this. Daniel was told, he was given this vision, right? He was told, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Okay, he's ordered, seal it up. Now, we know that his vision was fulfilled several hundred years later. John receives his vision. He's instructed, do not seal what has been seen, for the time is at hand. So how could this be at hand if the bulk of Revelation supposedly refers to what is going to occur 2,000 years Later, if Daniel said, this is several days in the future, seal it up, John is told, don't seal it up, it's at hand, okay? In Daniel 2, you remember that Daniel interpreted, that, interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, remember that giant statue, it was made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron mixed with clay, And that revealed for Daniel that there would be four successive world empires beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's, the Babylonian Empire, followed followed by the Medo-Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire and then the fourth would be the Roman Empire. So in the days of that last empire, the Roman Empire, God says that heaven the God of heaven will set up his kingdom and that kingdom will never end. In Daniel chapter two, verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Okay, that eternal kingdom was, inaugur- it was inaugurated and preached at the first coming of Jesus Christ. That kingdom will be finally consummated at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Daniel 2.28, he, God, had showed and made known what must take place in latter days. In Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. So what were those latter days in Daniel's book? The answer is right there in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Who was it that inaugurated the kingdom that God will never destroy? Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that phrase there, the term at hand or or near, is not that the kingdom of God is on the horizon or that it's coming sometime soon, but that it's actually here now. It's being communicated in a way that's known as an exaggerated statement of imminence. It's now. It is upon you. Remember what Jesus said when he was casting out demons. He said this. Matthew 12, 28. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So his casting out demons proved, number one, he is the kingdom. Amen? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the kingdom. The kingdom has arrived in Christ. So whether you realize it or not, the kingdom has come, and the kingdom is still coming. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Luke 17, 20. You know, a lot of people talk about this war as though a Christian can lose the war. But one writer has said, look, the war is over, Christian, whether you want it to be or not. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Chapter 2, verse 15. He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So the setting up of the kingdom of God began with the coming of Jesus Christ. It was inaugurated then. Look back at Revelation 1, verse 5. Christ is the ruler of the kings on earth. Notice verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests in that kingdom. Notice Revelation 1 verse 9. Now John refers to himself, notice, as a brother and what? A partner in what? Tribulation and a partner in the kingdom. The kingdom. Now, it is also true that this kingdom has not yet been established in its final form. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we look forward to because that is the new Jerusalem. Which tells us that the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy is an everlasting kingdom. Inaugurated by Christ, it will come to pass through a process and not one cataclysmic event. We're in the midst of that process. It came and it's coming. It will be finally consummated at the return of our glorious Lord, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. So that inaugural prophetic truth enables us to understand the New Testament. Now, the subject matter or the concern in this letter, literal letter, it's a prophecy, there's a concern here. The things that what, next word? must soon take place, Revelation one. Blessed are those who hear, verse 3, and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now over and over again in the book of Revelation we have references to time frames of nearness. And we'll explain all this in the weeks to come, but we're trying to lay groundwork right now, okay? In Revelation 1.19, write the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Chapter 2, repent or I will come to you quickly, He's not referring to the second coming there, but rather to the providential judgment of God upon the church. <laughs> chapter 22.10, the time is near. In chapter 22, he speaks of things which must shortly take place. Now, you can go check out your Greek concordance and you'll see that these terms, the two terms used here, soon, near, and at hand, all are time frame references that have very a very short time span. So, to exaggerate or stretch stretch out the, re- the truth that, that, that soon and nearer at hand mean 2,000 years is to do just that. It's to exaggerate the meaning of those words. So, the point is this. Those that originally received this letter, remember it's a letter, In its first edition, understood the fundamental nearness of those things that were about to unfold. Thus, the reason the first century Christians had a sense of urgency for the crisis that was at hand. And there was crisis, great crisis, great suffering. So because of the language of Revelation itself, those time references speak of those things which must soon take place, soon meaning soon. Now, some attempt to say that soon and near has nothing to do with time at all, but rather refers to with having to do with the reality of an any-moment possibility. Okay, some interpret it that way, but I think that's to distort the meaning of the word soon and to distort the meaning of the word near. Now, the concern of this letter is with what will soon come to pass. The concern of this letter to this original audience is with what is at hand. Therefore, any interpretation that propels the entire fulfillment of Revelation to the last seven years of human history with with Christians being secretly, you know, secretly disappearing somewhere around chapter four misses the point of the book of Revelation altogether. Which is a letter and a prophecy to the seven churches in Asia Minor, okay? So it's a letter, and it's a prophecy. Thirdly, the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. You know, it's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. (laughs) So is the book of Revelation, (laughs) Apocalyptic language is a literary genre that seeks to communicate truths very, very, very differently than the other books of the Bible. There is apocalyptic language elsewhere. We even see it in the Olivet Discourse that Jesus Christ himself spoke. You see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Daniel and other portions of Scripture. But it was a very popular way of writing from 200 B.C. to about 200 A.D., I have two books, 2,000 pages of apocalyptic literature from spanning from that time, 200 BC to 200 AD. Quite fascinating, actually. So, we must understand apocalyptic language in order to understand and properly interpret the book of Revelation. Now, you're taught, as we all are, always read the Bible, what? Literally. Okay, always read the Bible literally. True, but we don't read it. We all know that we don't read it in a wooden literal sense. Amen? Jesus said, I'm a door. Right? We all know there's not, he's not made of wood. He doesn't have a knob. And hinges, right? We all know that. It's figurative. He's the lamb. You'll see the, the word lamb referred to 56 times. I think it's 56 times in the book of Revelation. And as my friend said yesterday, you don't picture Jesus walking up all fuzzy and wool-like going, bah. We understand this, amen? He is the lamb. He's referred to as the lamb of God. During the Great Reformation, the, the Reformer, reformers used a phrase, sensus literalis, which means literal sense, to, for the, to provide the literal sense of the word of God. That does not mean that we take each word in its radical, literal, or wooden sense, but in its literal or intended sense, according to its literary genre. Therefore, when we read the book of Revelation, it being the genre of apocalyptic literature, we must interpret it according to that reality. We don't interpret Romans like Proverbs, amen? You don't interpret the book of Jonah as you would the Song of Solomon. It's a different genre of writing. When we we just studied Ruth, we just studied um, Jonah prior to that. When the Bible says that Jonah went to Tarshish, bought a fare to enter onto the ship and began to sail, it means that he literally walked to Tarshish purchased a fare, entered that boat, and sailed. When the book of Ruth describes Ruth as laying at the feet of Boaz, uncovering his feet, she literally went in and uncovered his feet. When we read about Jesus and a sword coming out of his mouth, we know that there's not a literal sword coming out of his mouth. He's the lamb who speaks the word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. So once we come to understand the reality of this type of genre, apocalyptic literature, you won't be led astray by people saying, you know, this symbol in the book of Revelation refers to, you know, Barack Obama or Kim (laughs) Jong-il. And this over here is a hydrogen bomb. The locust plague, helicopters, you know, they have a sting in their tail. Those are missiles, man. Apocalyptic literature is chock full of imagery. So, when we read the book, when you read the Bible, you read it literally wherever possible. When you read the book of Revelation, you read it symbolically wherever possible. Okay? We read it symbolically wherever possible. Now, there's, in this book you will see the symbolic use of numbers, huge in this book the symbolic use of colors and images and cosmic signs in the heavens and so on, describing for us a glimpse into the heavenly realm, this veil being pulled back as we'll spend the first 11 chapters looking at this war going down down here on earth from an earthly perspective. And then all of a sudden the veil is pulled back in chapters 11 and 12 that enable us to see what's going on behind the scenes that's causing this the cosmic reality of those things. In the middle of the book of Revelation, we see the birth of Christ, which is, again, a principle to be adhered to that the book is not chronological. You know, some used to say that the book of Revelation was written in secret code in case the Romans got a hold of it. Now, that's a romantic notion, but highly doubtful. It was written in a style that was not at all, beloved, uncommon, especially, especially when people were suffering persecution. Very important, as we will see. So how then did apocalyptic language function? How did apocalyptic language function? Quite simply, beloved, to stimulate the imagination, to stimulate the imagination. Apocalyptic language, like poetry, is evocative language. It's evocative language. It's suggestive. It's reminiscent. And Revelation is reminiscent in that it calls to mind certain images that have been previously established already. In the case of Revelation, you'll see that it's images that are established in the Old Testament. John's experience, as we read through this book, we'll see was something he could not describe on the surface. So he goes and he reaches for pictures. He uses symbols in order to describe this glorious heavenly vision. And then where do these images come from? He draws from imagery that he knew very, very well. He makes use of symbolic language which is very familiar to him and any Jew in the first century from the Old Testament. For instance, look at Revelation 6, verse 12. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. Now, there's all kinds of people today doing all kinds of weird things looking for this blood moon thing. Now, is this referring to a cloud caused by hydrogen bombs or comets hitting the earth? I don't think so. But if I study the Old Testament counterparts, I begin to see that these dramatic images are very clear as I simply read the Old Testament. Okay? For instance, you can read of giant earthquakes or mountains Shaking. This is imagery that comes from the Old Testament. And again, Revelation takes us back to imagery, not specific quotations, but imagery of the same type of event. And you'll see giant earthquakes or mountains shaking in the Old Testament, and I just listed these so that you can go look on your own, we don't have time, from Exodus 19, Psalm 18, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24, Nahum 1, Joel 2. The earth becoming a sackcloth, or uh, the sun was darkened, or darkness covers the earth. We see that language in Exodus 10, Job 9, Isaiah 5, Isaiah 24, Ezekiel 32, Amos 8, Joel 2, Micah 3. The moon becomes like blood, or its light is taken away. Job 25, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 24, Ezekiel 32, Joel 2. I've spent time with people who have a very different view of Revelation than I do, which is fine. By the way, you don't separate over that, beloved. Did you know that? You don't separate over these things. These are non-essentials. We're trying to look at what does the text mean by what it It says. When I provided scripture like this, they basically say, man, don't bother me with the details. I'm affixed to what I have in my mind. Don't bother me with the details. anyway, Food for thought. So, John is taking imagery that he already knows from the Old Testament and he's writing, beloved, by divine inspiration and he's using imagery to communicate the truths being revealed, exposed (laughs) to him by Christ. Question Do you think? that the original recipients of this letter understood the imagery? Answer? Yes. Yes. John was writing to these people, beloved, a mission and a message. A mission and a message. Why did it make sense to them? Why did it make sense? Because the original audience understood the imagery involved. Now, every culture throughout time has images that they're familiar with, symbols that don't have to be explained. If I had a picture, which I don't, let's say I had a photo of a huge mound, um, something circular about 10 inches high, 14 inches in diameter, covered with frosting with a candle on top. What comes to your mind? A birthday cake. Amen? If there's an image of a red octagon up there, it's just red. I'll say, don't proceed, but stop. You don't even have to have the the, the word stop there. You understand that imagery. You don't have to decode those images. Because in our culture, we understand that imagery. Different cultures have different symbols, so the original recipients of the book of Revelation understood those symbols, amen? So we're gonna, take, we're gonna have to put in the work to understand the symbolism that they would have understood, amen? Now, for instance, I want you to look at this exercise, okay? This is apocalyptic language in our day and see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. The crescent moon mooned, Larger. While the eagle slept, two silver birds flew above the wall and tore into the apple. The great and the small, the finest and the bravest, perished. Ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, the bull and the bear stood still. As the smoke rose from the twisted steel mountain. Its number is (laughs) 911. What does that describe? 911. Hello. Crescent moon, Islam. Crescent moon, moon larger. Islam is growing while the eagle, which represents America, slept. Two silver birds, boom, flew over the wall. The wall. Wall Street, they tore into the apple, the big apple, the nickname for New York City. The great and the small perished. The wealthy, the executives on the top floor to the janitor on the eighth floor perished. The finest, the bravest. New York's finest police, New York's bravest. Ashes to ashes, from dust to dust. Remember the ash? The bull and the bear stood still. New York Stock Exchange. And the smoke rose from the twisted steel wreckage mountain. It's numbers 911. In order for us to understand the book of Revelation, we're going to have to go back and familiarize ourselves with the apocalyptic genre of language of that day. <laughs> Amen? Don't come with presuppositional views that this means this and this means that. Okay? This is symbolism for our day. That we under- Some of you might not even understood it. Amen? <laughs> I I only added a little bit to that. Um, Jeanne Constantino came up with that and I just added a couple things to it. Now, if today's newspaper, beloved, is necessary and is the necessary key to interpreting the book of Revelation, then no generation until our own could have understood or obeyed it, let alone if it's another thousand years off. Revelation 1:3 says, "Blessed are those who hear. We're going to talk about that next time, and keep, i.e., obey, what is written in it." Now, how would they have read and obeyed what's written in it if the prophetic truth within was intended for an audience two, three or four, thousand years later? This book, which is a literal letter. A consummate prophecy and an apocalyptic genre of writing reveals for us, beloved, from beginning to end, from chapter 1 to chapter 22, that there are two eternal destinies in Revelation, the Lake of Fire or the New Jerusalem. It's two. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between road. It's the broad way or it's the narrow way. You're either with the victor in the Lamb of Jesus Christ or you're chained to the dragon. Where are you? Well, I'm on an island of mediocrity. Dear friend of mine, returned to Pacific Hope Church, just finished seminary. Our brother Anthony Melacher, one of our elders of the past who went on to seminary and is back, and I'm very thankful. He came in to pray on Wednesday night. We never made it to the prayer meeting, but we fellowshiped for three-plus hours, and it was a joy for me, by the way, brother. And we're talking about the compromised condition of the professing church of Jesus Christ, especially in America. And we were talking, he said, you know what? Many people are anchored, and they've anchored their life on an island of indifference. They're docked in their comfort." And they're deceived into thinking that they can set sail anytime they want for the mainland of eternal security. But what they don't realize is that they've tied themselves off onto something that is not an island, but it's a floating cabana. what they thought to be a shelter of middle ground, a shelter of a delay, a shelter of procrastination with this whole Jesus thing is really an island of doom and it's drifting towards the great abyss and they don't even know they're moving. There's two camps in Revelation. There's two peoples. There's no neutral ground. You're either owned by the lamb or you're a slave of the dragon. Revelation is not written, beloved, to prepare anybody for some type of second chance. A friend of mine who I discipled for a year lived with me in 1997, I think it was. I discipled him every day for a year. And he finally concluded that, you know what? I'm just going to go back to my vomit. And you know what he said to me? He said, well, one thing I know, Big John... Is that when this secret rapture happens? It's a presuppositional view. I won't take that chip, and I'll become an evangelist with everything you taught me, and I'll see you in heaven. He was misreading scripture because of some novel that he read. He's still moored to the island of indifference that's drifting towards the great abyss. There's no second chance for anybody. The call is to repent of lukewarmness, repent of indifference, and come to Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. He's the victor of the book, He's the conqueror. You're either in Him or you're not. <coughs> to conclude, What's the book of Revelation about? In a nutshell. Romans 8.38 is a good summary. Look at it. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation (laughs) will be able to to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that just about summarizes everything in the last book of the Bible known as the Revelation. It is about the complete security of God's suffering people to the end. In the midst of turmoil, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trial, in the midst of temptation, you will persevere to the end because of the one who persevered before us. And no matter what may come or when it comes, the true believer is secure because they have the mark of God upon their foreheads. That's symbolic. Just as the mark of the beast is symbolic. Because the genre of literature is apocalyptic. But even that great truth fails to capture the real message of revelation, not because such security isn't true, but because it fails to ask the right question. (laughs) We must always be careful to read the Bible theologically, beloved. In other words, rather than asking, what does this book have to say to me? What we ought to instead be asking is what does this book teach me about Jesus? Not the Antichrist. About Jesus. The knowledge of self is only achieved by a greater knowledge of God. The last place you want to do is this continual internal search of yourself. You'll be miserable until you know the Lamb. So to suffering Christians in the first century and every century thereafter, John has a profound message about God. Jesus Christ, who is God, rules and reigns and will ultimately triumph gloriously. (laughs) So, Revelation, beloved, is primarily about the triumph of Jesus Christ over every form of evil that is set against his church. It's the sign given in the opening verses, chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, the ruler of kings on the earth. So Jesus, beloved, rules, and Jesus reigns. He is the conquering hero. He's the victor. He's come to earth. He upheld the law. He laid down his life. He raised it up again. He destroyed Satan. He destroyed Satan's power over the nations, over God's people. He ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he will return in glory at any unknown moment. That is the message of the Revelation. Amen. Father, we thank you for our victor, our conquering hero, your lamb, our savior, our master, for whom we bow before as slaves, having been freed from the slavery of the dragon, satan sent free of for whom you made a public spectacle of we praise you we thank you and I ask that we will stand in a position of humility teachability to work our way through this glorious beautiful book about your son our savior Jesus Christ for it's in his name we gather and pray amen